Welcome to Japan on Fire, episode 32 on Momotaro Sacred Sailors. It's the first feature-length anime out of Japan. It's got singing animals, and it's a war propaganda movie. 1945's Momotaro Sacred Sailors is up for review here on Japan on Fire. We're going uh, sort of OG origin point here. I'm going to be with me to uh, discover this historic point in Japanese animation. It's the first feature-length Japanese animated movie. And uh, with me is Paul Fox of the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Say hello. Hello, hello. And I'm very happy to be here to talk anime and uh, especially this not widely known uh, feature that's now out on Blu-ray. Yep, it's it, it was gone for many years, and then it. I don't think the West got an official release or wide official release until the fairly recent restoration. But uh, it's a, it's a special movie, right? A historic piece used as a. Um, as a, as a tool of war of sorts but uh, we'll, we'll certainly get to that in a little bit uh, were, were you at all aware of this like Momotaro Sacred Sailors the first feature length animated movie or this was completely new to you in terms of which was the first feature anime I, I think I had come across the title the name of the title before in you know books on Japanese animation I mean for myself as a little bit of a anime nerd. I mean, a lot of us consider the quote-unquote first anime um, to be Tetsuan Adam or Mighty Adam, uh, Astro Boy as it's known here in the West, by Tezuka Osamu. But that is, uh, you know, two decades later uh, in '63. There are things here that actually become references in some of his later work um, that I think we'll talk about. So this is a a truly great find for anybody who's interested in in Japanese animation or anime in particular, even though this isn't what I think we would call anime-esque because you don't have that sort of signature style which dominates the industry these days in this kind of animation. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about you know the, the styles and, and uh, also some of the narrative trappings that are here in, as we get into the program. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll be sure to do that. Uh, first of all, some brief contact information. This is Japan on Fire on the podcast on Fire Network. For the back catalogue of uh, this particular show, we've done anime before, including in the last episode, we did a mighty special on uh, Fist of the North Star, uh, which we got some good notices on. So thank you very much for uh, sitting through that. It was a mighty big information package, uh, plus uh, Paul... Uh, uh, bit the bullet without me even asking him to by watching the live action movie of uh, Fist of the North Star. No, no one asked him, but he did it anyway. And uh, he could deliver the info on our show. And uh, it was as uh, painful as you might expect. But then again, uh, w- watching a movie necessarily isn't the most p- painful thing in the world. Like It came and went and uh, it's not uh, Paul's most uh, cherished disc in his collection, but... Uh, he did it, and um, he might do it again in a few years. Who knows? But uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, are you more drawn to the like, oh, I'm going to watch the animated one, or, or are you more drawn to the fact that I'm going to watch the crappy live one because it was kind of crappy, and I'm in the mood for crappy. So which one would get pulled from the shelf? Fist of the North Star live or animated? Oh, yeah, that, we, we got to go back to animated uh, before the live action. It's... Um... Just not a not a, a great film. And a, a little bit of errata from that episode. I know that I misspoke when I was talking a little bit about uh, actor Gary Daniels. You call, called him Australian, Paul. I called him Australian and he's a, he's an English <clears throat> actor. So I, I, you know, 
when I'm wrong, I, I do apologize. And uh, some people called me out on that point, And I'm pretty sure that I was uh, sort of juxtaposing him um, with uh, another famous Australian actor that we sometimes talk about in Hong Kong cinema. And I do apologize uh, for that mistake. I, I didn't even say anything on the show because um, I, was, I was probably thinking, is he English or is he Australian? But I can't stop the show. It's too much fun to listen to Paul's review. So I'm going to leave him hanging <laughs> by himself. <laughs> Uh, anyway, anyway, we have other shows on the podcast, on Fire Network, on Hong Kong Cinema, uh, on Korean Cinema, on uh, Sleazy Cinema and whatnot. So make your uh, choices there on the right-hand side of our website. And check out the bonus episode archive for some fun stuff as well. If you have any questions or feedback, if you uh, know of this movie, Sacred Sailors, want to share your view on it, podcast on fire at googlemail.com is the way to uh, do that. One of the ways you can do it on social media as well. So follow the buttons at the top of our website to our Facebook page. Once you're on Facebook, you can join our Facebook group. It's called Podcast on Fire Network. And one of the other buttons leads to our Twitter feed and to our iTunes feed and to our Instagram account and all of that good stuff. So once you're on iTunes or if you search us on Apple Podcasts, do consider leaving a review or even subscribing. Either or is perfectly fine with me. So thank you very much. And I write about the variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies and uh, my Taiwanese interest certainly connects to this episode because researching The Child of Peach was the way I found out that this movie existed. But at the time I didn't watch it, it didn't have a Blu-ray, Sacred Sailors by then, probably restored and screened, but didn't have a Blu-ray. And I couldn't find, via my one search, any subtitles on, um, on the YouTube versions that were floating around then but i think there were fan subtitles for for this movie but maybe maybe not uh, that particular upload so uh, i i noticed it existed in some shape or form but i didn't view it for research and they, they couldn't be more different uh, this momotaro versus the momotaro depiction in the child of peach uh, but uh, we'll certainly get um, get to that and uh, i have a twitter feed it's at so good reviews and all that good stuff uh paul even though it's uh, it's in limbo hibernation right now i want to plug your podcast archive of this bite it was and still is called the east green west green podcast and you can find it over at uh, kongcast.com um, we have been on hiatus for about a year about a year now because of you know just life and craziness uh, getting in the way and hopefully we will start up at some point excellent well if you have any idea for the kind of series we've been doing over on east screen uh, west screen then uh, feel free to uh, give me a holler because uh, I'm, uh, I'm 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 always on board with uh, with some new stuff uh, so uh, so uh, if you have an extra chair for me even if it's a rickety old chair and not very comfortable then i'll i'll take it sounds good uh, at any rate, uh, uh, the rundown of what's to come here will be dividing the show uh, into sections. Uh, first, talking of um, the background on the film, why it was made, why it disappeared for so many years. Momotaro, Sacred Soul, Soul, Sailors, that is. And we conclude the episode by reviewing the film. Simple and easy, and timestamps for these sections are available in the show post. So here we go. The oldest anime we've reviewed on uh, this show, for sure. Momotaro, Sacred sailors from 1945 and plot that i extracted from wikipedia it's a little description up to a certain point in the film uh, so it goes as follows after completing naval training a bear a bear cub a monkey a pheasant and a puppy say goodbye to their families while they are preoccupied the monkey's younger brother falls into a river while chasing the monkey's cap and is carried towards a waterfall the dog and monkey work together to save a child just before he is swept downstream 
a timeskip occurs and Japanese forces are seen clearing a forest and constructing an airbase in a Pacific island with the help of jungle animals. A plane lands in the airstrip and from inside emerges Momotaro, depicted as a general. So this is Peach Boy, but depicted as a general, together with uh, the bear, monkey, dog and pheasant, who by this point have become high-ranking officials. The subsequent scenes show the jungle animals being taught the alphabet via singing, washing clothes, giving military training and loading weapons in airplanes. Did I mention this is a war propaganda movie? <laughs> a narration of the story of how the island of... Uh, how do you pronounce this, Paul? Celebes? Celebes, or I believe it's a, it's a, um, also referred to as Sulawesi. It's part of the uh, Indonesian island chain. And this island, uh, as part of the story, was acquired by the, maybe it's true as well, by the Dutch East India Company. Uh, that follows that narration. And it is revealed that the Japanese are attempting to invade it. The monkey... Dog and bear cub become parachute jumpers, while the pheasant becomes a pilot. So that's what's depicted in this um, 74-minute black-and-white animated Japanese movie. The first of its kind. So it's actually a sequel to the director Mitsuyo Seo's short film, uh, Momotaro no Umiwashi, literally translated as Momotaro's Sea Eagles. That, just like the feature sequel, was a propaganda film endorsed by the Japanese Imperial Navy. Uh, Momotaro, or Peach Boy, as we know him through other movies, is part of a naval unit along with his animal friends. They're fighting together. That short movie recreates the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, in the film, the American and British forces are demons of the island of uh, Onigashima. And the film even incorporates, if I understood Maddis correctly, actual live-action footage of uh, the Pearl Harbor attack. So it sounds uh, very, uh, uh, sort, of, sort of, you'll sit up in your seat, like uh, things got real now. It's not just animated stuff. It, uh, they actually incorporate, like, maybe newsreel footage, who knows. This was, at any rate, made in 1943, this short. And... Uh, then the feature format for Peach Boy's Adventures in Service of Japan uh, War Interests continued uh, here in uh, 1945. Uh, J- the Japanese Naval Ministry expressed interest to have a film made, again aimed at children. And this became this movie here, Momotaro Umi no Shinpei, also referred to in English as Momotaro Se- Sacred Sailors, also Momotaro's Divine Sea Warriors, or Momotaro god warriors of the sea but if you want to look it up on amazon it's it's the former title sacred sailors it was kind of a result of uh, disney's 1940 film fantasia and uh, the impact it made that piqued the curiosity of the naval ministry how they sort of wanted to aim it at children i suppose and make it a little bit more uh, children's friendly or just approachable this was uh, then brought to director mitsuyo seo who had his uh, personal theme of uh, quote giving dreams to children uh, as well as instill the hope for peace injected into it so that was uh, his uh, choice also animation wasn't a fully shaped propaganda tool as such and not even the primary propaganda tool during this period because it wasn't considered as effective and there's even an on-screen tag that opens the film specifically saying this was designed for children so it was made Presumably screened as widespread as the powers that be uh, could um, spread it, but for the longest of time it was um, said and uh, presumed that uh, this feature film had been uh, confiscated and destroyed during the American occupation of Japan, so it didn't have uh, a long life in terms of uh, being screened. But it was discovered decades later, in 1983. 
because they, they found a copy of the negative, maybe not the original, but a copy of the negative emerged, and it was re-released in 1984 on Japanese VHS. They were able to determine that it had one scene missing that apparently featured uh, Popeye and uh, Bluto. This actually is in the prints we have now, so uh, this, was, uh, this wasn't permanently lost, uh, but it was uh, removed uh, for the VHS, if I understood things correctly, because of copyright infringement. Uh, back then, no one would have said, like, hey, 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 remove it, but in the 80s, someone would probably say, like, hey, Popeye, that's us, because it's unmistakably Popeye. I don't know how closely it uh, resembled Bluto. It was Bluto. <laughs> I mean, if you've seen, if you've ever seen early Popeye, it was a very, it was a, for me as a first watch, as soon as, um, because I think Bluto appears first, I'm like, oh, wow, they, that's, that's, a, that's, you know, very telling. And then immediately after it's like, oh, <laughs> they're going all the way. So yeah, it was, uh, it was very much the design of Bluto. And uh, Popeye even drops a can and you can say it's probably says like SP something, even if you don't see the whole word, word of spinach. So. They only, they only fell short of like throwing in the Popeye theme. Yeah, they didn't do that, indeed. This re-release in 1984 paired up the movie with uh, the maybe on the same VHS or um, something like that. I don't know specifically, but it, it was paired up with the 1943 animated short for Spider and the Tulip, which you can actually see also cleaned up and looking good on the American and UK Blu-ray release of Sacred sailors and i might as well stop there we're not going to do a full review on it but uh, we we both watched it it's 16 minutes it's a black and white short and uh, it was uh, preceded by a little uh, not a warning but a little disclaimer that uh, we're going to present this uh, without alterations but remember that this was made during a time where the content you're about to see was deemed more acceptable and the world was a little bit different and uh, why would they, for a cute animated short, make such a statement before uh, the film, Paul? Uh, what is it about the spider and the tulip that's not politically correct at all in 2020? I think the most outstanding thing is for Americans that the spider is presented kind of in blackface and he sings most of his dialogue. And it, the the song is sort of what I would say is kind of Al Jolson-esque in some ways. Um as a as a kind of more of a crooner type of song and and so i think that's you know by today's standards and sensibilities um considered uh, offensive to groups of african americans probably that's one of the reasons why they put that disclaimer up there and you know that's a, that's a whole big can of worms because we have you know we have features that are seen in the same light that um you can't get access to except through uh, non-legal means, uh, sites like YouTube or torrents and things, um, features like Song of the South or, you know, other things that have been pushed aside over the years because of, you know, they, they present things in an insensitive manner. I don't want to speak for any groups, but I can just, as a person who appreciates art, even if it's art that's kind of directed at at any social or racial group that I belong to myself, uh, in, and puts that group in a negative light, um, I can still appreciate it. And I wouldn't necessarily want to censor it. Um, um, but I do understand that making these things commercially available is a very touchy subject for a lot of people. Yeah, if it's through Disney Corporation, it's it's a ladder to climb. This was, you know, an animated short from Japan. And by presenting it on the Funimation and uh, all the anime uh, UK Blu-ray, 
you know, it's not going to shake those corporations as such. But uh, Disney probably uh, don't want to associate themselves with their past images that they created, whether in feature form or short form. I mean, this, uh, the stuff you showed me from uh, from the archives are st- stuff that's not going to be on Disney Plus or whatever because um, it was made, but um, they they they've washed their hands uh, of it uh, by now. Yeah. And it's still going on. I mean, it, it, this is this is something that's been a bit controversial because you brought up Disney Plus. Even features that have gotten sort of unedited commercial releases on Blu-ray and DVD, Disney with Disney Plus releases of those same features has gone in and chopped them up a bit. So, for example, Dumbo, which features the characters of the magpies or the crows, and that's also a reference to sort of Deep South African-Americans from an earlier time. They've taken those scenes out of the Dumbo version that's going up on Disney+. Plus. Another example that you can find is if you manage to see the theatrical release of Aladdin, the animated film, not the new Will Smith one, there's some lyrics in there in the, in the very first song, Arabian Nights, where uh, I think a line is... Um, something about cutting off your ear if they don't like your face. If you picked up the original soundtrack, uh, you still have that version. But if you picked up a re-release or if you pick up, I think, a new uh, Blu-ray version of that film, um, or even the, I think by the time the DVD release hit stores uh, and the VHS, because I think that was still an era of VHS, that, that dialogue, that song had already, that line had already been changed to something else because it was deemed uh, racially insensitive. Um, so, the, you know, this this kind of stuff is still something that jockeys around um, based on, you know, uh, different attitudes and attitude shift uh, decade by decade. But uh, The Spider and the Tulip was uh, featured as was, and uh, you can make your own, own determination in terms of acceptance, but kind of appreciation that uh, what's and all we're going to feature this stuff uh for you and uh, put a little disclaimer there that we don't share these views and i think that's um that's fine um in terms of uh, sacred sailors it has uh, remained in the public eye uh, since and uh, especially after its restoration uh, it was screened as part of uh, the can classic section in uh, at the 2016 can film festival and this uh, restored and remastered version now enjoys multiple western blu-ray releases i i read a little of i haven't read it all through because i'm a notoriously slow reader uh of i uh, read a little of their 100 page book that comes with the momotaro uk blu-ray and the introduction talks of uh, sacred sailors being met with dissatisfaction by the powers that be once it was done they complained that it was too too homely uh, there was too much village stuff uh, not enough destruction and also too much of an insight into military strategy so it wasn't uh, necessarily liked by the powers that be and the release was actually delayed during that time the studio was nearly bombed uh, and the director's home was actually hit by a bomb to a degree and and uh, destroyed to a degree uh, so the director lost a lot of stills and sketches and all of that and uh, eventually all the towards the end of the war uh, all the films and the propaganda material was in the process of being destroyed and purged uh, and uh, research indicated that it was the american forces that supposedly destroyed the surviving materials of sacred sailors but a copy did survive ultimately and that's what we have now again whether it was the original or a good negative copy that could serve as um, the source for 
a quite good looking uh, restoration i'm not too sure but um it wasn't completely um eradicated from earth or anything so um that's um you know to our advantage if we if we want to view this as a historic piece uh, some further notes it uh, may have been uh, the first uh, feature length anime but uh, the makers had restrictions on them in terms of uh, the feature length of it all because they were not allowed to exceed 74 minutes and it, it certainly doesn't. It's almost exactly 74, I think. Due to the Japanese government beginning to ration film stock in 1943. I like that idea, Paul. <laughs> Even though we're not in the, in the era of film stock. But uh, you can't make longer than 74-minute movies, man. So it's going to have to be Avengers Infinity War 1 through 6. <laughs> right? <laughs> Rather than two movies. So I don't dislike that idea. Like, keep it short, keep it short, keep it friendly. Uh, we will be um, sort of transitioning to Momotaro or Peach Boy in other media encounters as well. But um, a silent live-action short of his adventures was made as early as 1915 in Japan. But that is lost. And uh, there are also subsequent cartoon versions that do survive. There's a nine-minute short called Momotaro is the Greatest, made in 1929. But a more ambitious grand adventure was produced in 1931 as uh, Momotaro of the Sky, where he and his fellow animal friends go to Antarctica to defend a penguin colony from from a flying eagle. And in 1932's Momotaro of the Sea, he captains a submarine and he takes on a shark. And in something called Toy Box Story Number 3, Picture Book 1936, it's Momotaro versus Mickey Mouse. I'm not saying they fight, but they, they're in it. And Jasper Sharp explained this um, sort of premise uh, what it, uh, what this is so quote the film actually went into production in 1934 a year before japan planned withdrawal from the league of nations which threatened its jurisdiction over various territories in the south seas so the film's depiction of the island's uh, invaders which bear a strong re- resemblance to a certain well-known disney character has given uh, rise to the film's alternative titling of uh, momotaro versus uh, mickey mouse and it's interesting to see an American cultural icon so firmly identified as the aggressor this early on in the 15 years war that began with Japan's invasion of uh, Manchuria in 1931, end quote. And uh, I'm I'm not sure this exists or not, but uh, if someone has written fairly extensively and can make notes on it, I hope it's uh, viewable in some shape or form if you're interested in it from a historical uh, perspective. Uh, back to Momotaro, uh, Sacred Sailors. Um, uh, you know, it was propaganda, as we said. Its desired, uh, its desire was effect on viewers. Uh, its desire was a nationalistic um, effect and intent. But um, you know, as a matter of fact, we touched on this. But uh, when it opened in 1945 in Tokyo, the city had been leveled by massive firebombing raids by the Americans. So there was essentially not any cinema left in the city to show the film. Not even for children, because they had been evacuated to the countryside by that point. And within a few months, uh, Japan surrendered, and the film disappeared or was destroyed in the aftermath, and, uh, aftermath until a copy emerged in the 80s, as we, uh, as we mentioned. But uh, we, uh, me, me and Paul, we have experienced the adventures of uh, Momotaro in uh, a way different form, uh, as more closely you know, connected to the name Peach Boy, because it was not only you know cartoons or strictly meant for japanese makers only and perhaps more famously at least in maybe cult circles taiwan produced two films in the 1980s featuring the wild fantasy and special effects tinted adventures of momotaro called the child of peach 
and its um, sequel was called Magic of Spell. I guess uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw over to you if you want to share some spontaneous uh, opinions on that uh, children's movie. But uh, if we, we might as well talk a little bit about the background of the character. It doesn't show up in Sacred Sailors because he isn't depicted as a peach boy. But um, in the Taiwanese movie, it really does seem to correspond to the origin of, of Peach Boy. So it's based uh, on the popular hero out of Japanese folklore called Momotaro, literally, literally meaning peach, and Taro itself. It's a common enough Japanese boy's name. Uh, so he, he is uh, often referred to as uh, Peach Boy. As, you are, as you've understood, it's a multimedia character via books and films. It's a story, at, at least in, um, according to the story, at least in its present form, uh, dating back to the Edo period of uh, Japanese history. Momotaro arrives to Earth in a giant peach and is discovered by an old woman washing her clothes in the river. And actually, dis- they discover the peach and not the boy until they try to eat the peach and ta-da! He comes out and, ha you can't eat me, I'm a boy. Uh, and along the way, uh, and over time, uh, via different uh, uh, regions, you have different variations of the origin and story, though. But that is the basics of it, and that's how he comes to live with this uh, old man and this, uh, this woman. He explains to them that he has been sent by uh, heaven to be their son. And it is the couple that names him Momotaro. And he spends years with his family. And uh, some variations of the story have him being brought up as a fine boy. Another variation has him being brought up as a as a lazy boy. So there's different morals to the story here or different morals to the character. But eventually he leaves to fight demons on a distant island. And some versions of the story include an additional island where he both volunteers as well as being forced to help. So it's interesting how the variations are so black and white um, and along the way peach boy meets and befriends a talking dog a monkey a pheasant uh, in the movie it's a is a rooster in the child peach it's a rooster i believe and uh, they agree to aid him in his quest and they enter the demon's fort at this at the island i talked of uh, they defeat the demon forces they plunder their treasure they capture the demon's chief and in the end uh, all of this supports momentary and his family which sounds rather selfish uh, again a variation of the story so um you know, uh, it's a grab bag. Uh, some real life locations are believed to be associated with the creation of Peach Boys, such as Okayama and uh, Megajima Island, due to the plentiful man made caves uh, found on the island. And the story has been translated into English many times, uh, going back as far as 1885, as uh, Reverend David Thompson translated and put it into the first volume of something he called Japanese Fairy Tales series. Peach Boy has continued to appear in media uh, such as manga and anime series as late as uh, 2007 and 2010. The uh, fairy tale was the subject of a retelling in Hello Kitty's animation theater. And same retelling technique was done in the 1989 original video animation Amada anime series called um, Super, uh, which was based on Super Mario Brothers. But they used the characters uh, from the Mario video game to retell the fairy tale and the origin points, I guess, of Peach Boy. Uh, further examples, the 52nd episode of the animated series Samurai Jack, entitled Jack and the Baby, features the re- retelling and even Marvel Comics reimagined Momotaro in their X-Men fairy tale series, with the character of Cyclops being Momotaro, but he was called Hitomi in that version. It's got legs, apparently. <laughs> you know, it uh, can even be brought to something that you don't expect it to be brought to, such as the Super Mario Brothers uh, universe of the X-Men, so... So I, I want to throw, throw it over to you. I mean, there's a lot to take in in The Child of Peach, but uh, what's your spontaneous memory having watched it um, 
Um, knowing it's a children's movie, knowing it's a special effects movie as well, and knowing Taiwan doesn't give a fuck what they do. <laughs> they just they just they, they produce violence and uh, fecal matter on screen because it's for children and all of that. So, uh, but uh, what was your uh, impression of the Child of Peach? Oh no, I love it. It's uh, so just some crazy fun cinema to come out of Taiwan, and you can see there's quite a bit of uh, you know influence from mythological fantastical cinema um coming from hong kong at, around the same era and but they kind of take it and they they make it their own and it's uh it's not for everybody to be sure um it's not exactly for kids in the west <laughs> unless you um you know I, i'd say before you sit down with your little one and and watch it with them uh you might want to screen it first it, it gets a little bit uh, violent at points yeah, so some of the sensibilities are are a little bit different, but uh, um, the other films in the series too um, are just you know something that I would sit down and watch again, um, pretty much at the drop of a hat. You know, without Sue, we wouldn't have movies like The Child of Peach, I think. But uh, they, they have their own way of crafting energy through action direction, but also uh, during the post production process and it's it's good fun it's energetic the sequel is good fun as well and then magic warriors is sometimes lumped in unofficially as for child of peach free but the actress who plays a boy plays a completely different character in magic warriors but it's done in the same vein so it's really easy to pair them up as a triple feature because um, it's uh, it's the same kind of even exhausting type of uh, movie making but uh, I, I i find it to be quite um irresistible because uh, there, there were some creative forces behind those uh, behind those movies so. uh, at any rate uh, let's uh, move over to the movie review of momotaro sacred sailors and i want to throw over to you paul for a brief opinion um, i don't know did, did, did you find it hard to form a form an opinion because you know why this was made and w- what the intent was behind it it's not like this was the director's sort of vision of what i want to do no there were people saying what this was meant for so was it hard to form an opinion based on that no i don't think so i think this especially if you've seen um the the predecessor um motaro and the sea eagles where they're kind of using some bits of live footage i think this one is is much more digestible it's certainly more visually appealing they've done an excellent job cleaning it up and to just have this as a historical piece to kind of see how animation was being produced, uh, you know, out of Japan in this time period and have this as kind of this ancestor of what goes on to become uh, modern day anime. It, it's just a, a wonderful piece of animation. As you mentioned, it's not very lengthy, um, but it looks beautiful. It's got very, you know, you can look to other animation of the era. And of course, you've got the the powerhouse that is Disney. I mean, they were they had already done um, a handful of films, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and, and other, other things. And Fantasia, of course, a few years earlier. Yeah, and, Fanta- and Fantasia. So, you know, technologically, you know, there are, there are different aspects that you can compare this to. But even so, I mean, it's it's got its own uniqueness going on. And it's really pushing boundaries, I think, especially because it's a black and white film, although I think that's that's an unfair moniker to label on it because it's got such rich grayscale. And you don't often see animation look this clean and this 
uh, rich with grayscale. I mean, if you, especially if you look at, you look at a lot of the early, you know, Mickey Mouse stuff, Steamboat Willie and those things, they had, they were black and white. There was some grayscaling, but grayscale is hard to animate. Um, as, as, as I think any artist will tell you, it's just so much easier to do lines and, you know, solid blacks and solid whites and a little bit of gray in places, but you know, the backgrounds and the character costumes, um, and the things that they're doing here, uh, it, you know, it's just an amazing piece for anybody who appreciates animation, um, to look at because it's just so visually beautiful. Now the narrative itself, I think is, uh, equally interesting because, you know, one of the criticisms of this film that came out of Japan was it wasn't propagandistic enough because a good portion of the early part of the films is kind of these characters going back home to their village and spending time before they actually go out to their assignment, which is on this island in Southeast Asia. And, you know, it's kind of seeing them with their families and it's a little bit of insight into Japanese culture of, of the era. And they do spend a considerable amount of time there. And I guess that the producers or the powers that be, they wanted more action. They wanted more pow, pow, choo, choo explosions and things. And it, the film does get to that, but it's really kind of at the tail end. So you've kind of got these three stages, the village life, then they get to the Island and it's, you know, them teaching the Islanders Japanese for a bit. And um, there's some procedural stuff, which I guess was also another point of criticism that they were kind of showing too much about how things were done in the military. And then it gets sort of to the battle scene. And it's interesting because if you look at, if you compare it with Sea Eagles, Sea Eagles is uh, pretty much a half hour of just battle scene. (laughs) Um, there, there's some shenanigans that, that happen on the way, but it's really like they took sea eagles and kind of compressed it down to about, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so and tucked it into the end of this film. So there's a lot more going on here. It seems like a good little warm up for the production because it was the same director. Um, so they didn't go in completely cold trying to make this uh, folklore uh, come to life, albeit <laughs> via the intent that uh, the naval uh, Imperial Navy uh, had with it. So, And they, they do throw in a Bluto reference in Sea Eagles. Um, I There's characters who kind of look like Popeye, Popeye but it's not <laughs> so direct. I've got to put one in each of my movies. <laughs> <laughs> the animation quality itself, um, just in the span of a couple years between the two features, you can see the dramatic improvement and um, just in the quality. And, and I'm guessing that, you know, they they were given more money to kind of do this and put it out as, as a longer thing. But it's, you know, the, the, there's there you can definitely see in just a couple of years how much better it looks as a piece of animation. We'll, uh, we'll put a pin in it for now. And um, as for my sh- short opinion, I, I did have a little trouble forming a normal opinion. But at the same time, no. I mean, it was not meant at least not uh, beforehand but before they gave the reins to the director to to sort of further his voice to further Japanese animated cinema because they were under instructions to make a propaganda film but they did as a matter of fact you know you know even though it was meant for as a tool for then current times he, he, it is a technical achievement I mean there's some really nice animation here 
gorgeous background art. There, there's stuff in the foreground too, but some really lovely drawn environments here. Uh, uh, the character animation sometimes seems a little bit odd. I have some questions about that at points, but um, yeah, this is an old old movie. I mean, you know, because of its agenda, you look at it that way too. So um, I, I didn't know how hard this was going to push in terms of uh, the propaganda. If it was going to be humorous, it was going to be dark and, uh, you know, depicting a current reality because this is happening, even though we're making a movie with animals. This is still happening. And partially they actually do that. It's a movie of three sections, as Paul said, and uh, it's fascinating how they how they differ in tone. Um, uh, but uh, we'll get to that. It seems to get stuck in singing numbers for a bit. And uh, they, they they pile them on each other for a while. But it is a short movie, 74 minutes. But you wonder though, Paul, would children really like this mixture of songs, cute animals, and then a detailed depiction of a military operation? I mean, we, we're probably not the persons who can answer this because we didn't live this. But I wonder if uh, children would have been receptive to this because they were aware of the times. So they wouldn't be a problem to make a shift tonally as such because they really do make a shift tonally it gets less and less cute and then it begins to resemble stark reality you know or do you have a take on, on this if this is uh if children do you, like do, do, do you think children want to tune out once it turns serious oh i don't think so i think that you know one of the criticisms that's often kind of leveled over at uh anime when you get into sort of media criticism is that the levels of violence for quote unquote kids anime is pretty high. And I mean, you can look to stuff that's really targeted for young kids, be it, um, you know, your Pokemon stories or even something like, uh, uh, a dragon ball where they deal with violence and they deal with subject matter like death. That is usually a big no, no, uh, for American cartoons are, you know, directed at the same general demographics. And, you know, a relatively equal example would be looking at something like the GI Joe or the transformer cartoons. You know, it's okay to have violence where robots or, or robot soldiers are, you know, broken up and destroyed. But, you know, the GI Joe cartoons, anytime a character got shot down in a plane, there was always, a parachute at the last minute, you know, of them parachuting sort of off to safety. And for the longest time, I think that Japanese cartoons didn't shy away from ideas about, yeah, violence happens. It can be bad. People can die. Characters can die. And if you're lucky, you can go find a Dragon Ball and bring them back to life. <laughs> you find that out over the course of uh, 3,000 episodes. That uh, that determination yeah. you just made about Dragon Ball, like, oh, you just have to find that thing. Did I need to sit through it all to find that out? Well, I guess I I've already have, so darn. It, it, it is fun to go back to an origin point like this. Uh, it is animated. It's for kids. It's purpose, But its purpose is still challenging to me because I kind of have the worst eye when it comes to spotting the obvious, uh, such as what is propaganda? Uh, you know, what, like what is the potential heinous in terms of what characters and their action represents uh, or if there even is a tone like that uh, because I didn't know so you should at the same time also just let the 75 minutes wash over you and uh, 
and study it as a document of the time based on tense relations but uh, again it's a marvelous historically from you know for all flawed thinking from both sides in terms of the propaganda wars because you showed me some short movies from america that makes sacred sailors subtle and underplayed <laughs> it's it just like the, the, the looney tunes short it was just all kinds of they, they treated everything japanese as low-hanging comedic fruit and went for it like crazy like come on guys really <laughs> 50 of these yeah. jokes in seven seven minutes all kinds of stereotyping left and right but it was i, I guess that that was part of the propaganda war as well just going <laughs> at the other side you know yeah and a lot of this was i mean not directly coming from the animators or the animation companies but was being handed down from on high you know these were directives coming from the government I remember reading, you know, some stories about how the government was pushing uh, Walt Disney into this direction when he had other projects that he wanted to be working on. Um, and so, you know, a couple of the the titles that we looked at, uh, the Looney Tunes title in particular, it's very famous. It's banned. Uh, I don't think you can find an official commercial release of it anymore. It's called Tokyo Jokyo, but it is out there on <laughs> Even YouTube. Even the name, like, come on. <laughs> Even the name, yeah. It's and it's it's very it's very very offensive. But this is what they did, you know, wartime propaganda. They'd put these shorts on front of movies. The Disney one, um, which uh, talks about Nazism and uh, makes fun of Hitler. Uh, there there are actually quite a few of these, but these were ones that um, I often used um, when talking about. Uh, you know, doing doing critical media and wartime propaganda and these kinds of ideas with students. Um, the Disney one is called uh, Education for Death. You know, it's it's also up there on YouTube. You're not going to find it on Disney Plus, <laughs> but you can find it on YouTube and watch it. You know, and it's again, it's it's portraying things that for the time were you know people probably got behind and and agreed with, but by today's standards, they can definitely be seen as uh, highly offensive. So. Um, if you're interested in that stuff, you can track it down. I mean, we still have propaganda wars, uh, but it goes on online in, in various shapes yeah. and forms. Uh, and, and anyone can do it, uh, immaturely or not. Uh, going back to the film, uh, they, again, I really adored uh, the backgrounds and, uh, they are, and how they uh, painted these idyllic uh, locations that they come home to. That they come home to untouched land where there's no conflicts as such uh, i mean it's a land of conflicts but uh, they, this is a, a calm land and they're deriving home off, after a battle or after an assignment and it could have been a human homecoming to us boss i mean we, we've seen that in movies where soldiers come home but uh, they they make it a little bit more i, I guess uh, lively because when they come home these animals all the woodland creatures come out of come out of the woods out of the woodwork and it it, it makes it um you know it's clearly set on on land and in a universe that that's also inhabited by humans so to have these two elements mix that animals walk and talk and they live in human environments i it's one of those things i I kind of attached to i I liked the contrasts of that Uh, you know the walking animations and things like that that is really solid There, there were some I don't know if this was the style of the time, and I, I'm going to have such a hard time explaining this, but you can probably relate to it if I keep talking long enough. Some of the facial animations or the reactions of characters, whether exaggerated actions or if they're just simply being a little bit, 
tended to be floaty, slow and floaty as they changed their facial expressions and waved their arms a little bit. You can definitely see it in the depiction of the uh, Western forces towards the end. They they look like uh, jelly characters yes. almost. Yeah. But 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 that type of animation, character animation, facial animation, I'm not sure it's fair to call it wonky. I, I, I thought it it struck me a little bit because it, it, it freaked me out a little bit. But I don't know if it's an in, indication of where animation was at the time or this is how you drew uh, reactions and character animation at the time. So, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's not a criticism. It's just one of those like things you're not used to, you know, if you're used to animate from decades later. So is it easy to say if that is simply because animation is in a primitive state or could there be a case for this is how it was done uh, back then? I actually, I think you'd probably say the opposite that it wasn't in a primitive state that they were really putting in a lot of effort into multiple frames of animation i mean if you compare it with even contemporary animation um, a lot of contemporary animation from japan is very very limited it's like the character standing there and the mouth moves you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like that's the only thing you're going to see for a whole scene of dialogue whereas here yeah i mean you've got characters like momotaro where he's turning his head you know, to, to survey the troops. And it's, it's, I think you nailed it when you said it's got this almost like flowing like water sense to it. And if you're used to a different style of animation, be it Disney-esque or anime-esque, it can be a little bit jarring because you're not used to seeing a, a, a kind of flow like that. And, you know, in my mind, that just shows that they were really putting a lot more effort into um, animation Whereas today, you know, it's all about speed, speed, speed. You know, we've got to get out so many episodes in the season. And um, uh, what corners can we cut? Not necessarily as a bad thing, but just because of production deadlines and the the demand to, you know, meet something when a certain title is so popular that they have to put out thousands and thousands of episodes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's seen as the quality is so high and a lot of the animation work for for the animals that run around that are not reliant on reacting to dialogue that stuff looks great i think yeah just full animation of uh, all the carry all the animals coming out of the woods that stuff is great but it's when we the animals that actually talk and react a little bit like yeah, humans that's when it looks uh, the way we discussed so, so it's it's very interesting I think it's an interesting point, too, especially if you compare it with Western-style animation, which, um, you know, we really look to your your Disneys and your Looney Tunes and a lot of the crossover of animators who, you know, may have moved back and forth between companies over generations, where they're using a technique um, that you have to learn early on, which is called the squash and stretch technique. You see this going back to the very earliest, you know, sort of Mickey Mouse shorts and things where where characters compress like, you know, it's rubbery more so than watery. Like a ball will compress, it will squash out when it touches something and then stretch out as, you know, the, the physics of that impact, um, whatever, it, you know, whether it's a character or a, an object, it will st- stretch back out. And this is something that if you go to any animation school, they, they teach you, you know, starting from day one, learn to squash and stretch, squash and stretch. And so here again, too, I think, 
you know, as you look at these various animals and, and the way that they move and the way that their clothes move and the way that they deal with each other and other objects, it's not really following that kind of squash and stretch rule that we're so used to seeing in, you know, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner cartoons and Daffy Duck or Donald Duck or those kinds of things. I think they're, they're, they're doing a nice job making it approachable for kids because uh, they insert some info for the children characters. They, they wonder, you know, why they haven't been to battle or have they been to battle? And, and they educate because it's an educational film as well that some persons in the Navy don't go to the front line always. So we have uh, a need for persons in many positions. So they're, they're clearly educating the kids that way. But, but, but the dialogue is not too grown up. And even the, the, the kids, the kid animals, they are fascinated with the sounds of action a plane makes. So, you know, they they sit down and talk about that uh, and, you know, bring, they bring a children's perspective to it all. Uh, again, it's a propaganda tool. It's an educational tool, even if it's all surface level. I, I did find that uh, they, they were making an attempt to communicate for kids like kids would, uh, in a way. And the slightly more grown-up characters would tell them very simple, um, uh, simple truths and very simple facts, if you will. And, and again, it's probably my f- favorite section of the movie because it's very, it has scenic in its favor. It's not over-exaggerated just because it's uh, part fantasy, because we have animals here. So all these uh, little episodes of them being home, including a little bit of peril, uh, but also running around in the fields. Uh, there's even a war flashback, I think, here. Uh, it's not sugarcoating everything necessarily, but it's also clearly, and maybe this was the dissatisfaction from the powers that be, it clearly embraces that um, the home the home life and the harmony that could represent should be in this movie because we have those contrasts of these current times. Like if we're not at the front line, we're living our lives. And it seems like the director was not afraid to depict this for kind of half a movie or a third of the movie so uh it it didn't store this wasn't the section that stalled it for me it's probably in the preparation section that follows uh, with all the jungle animals helping out and the operation getting on underway after a while they 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 stack like three songs on top of each other and i'm thinking like now you're getting stuck a little bit but again 74 minutes so any opinions in terms of that did did you spot that the movie was um spending a lot of time on something or did you think it was like evenly divided between the sections so. no i did feel that the the sort of the preparation section um was a little bit lengthy especially when they get to the a e u a o song it, it's kind of a bit like the equivalent of the abc song so it's a great song for learning uh your your basic pronunciations of uh, hiragana japanese and it, it just goes on for a little bit too long, but I, you know, the, the understanding of the intent there, again, getting back to sort of the more propagandistic vision of it is that Japan during this time period, they were expanding and they were colonizing and, you know, setting up bases throughout the South Pacific, throughout the Southeast, you know, Asia in, in various places. And the idea how they wanted to see themselves as you know they were coming to liberate and part of the the theme of the narrative here is is liberation from colonial oppression right so they there's this short backstory about you know they label it as the uh, dutch east india company you know which is one of the very famous corporations 
that kind of pushed colonization through India, Hong Kong, Singapore, and other parts of Southeast Asia. And they are responsible for coming in and basically taking over, tricking people, and stealing up resources. And so Japan, as an Asian nation that becomes modernized, and the you know is technologically equivalent with the West portrays itself as a liberator. It wants to be seen as a liberator and an educator. We will come in. We are part of Asia too. Learn from us. We'll take care of you, which is a great message. But unfortunately, that's not how it always worked out in in reality. But you can see, you know, just it's just like American exceptionalism, you know, you know, come in and we'll come in and we'll show you how to do democracy. It sounds great on paper and, you know, you can make it look great in a promotional video, but it doesn't always work that way on the ground. So, you know, it's very idyllic in this section, you know, teaching the locals uh, how to speak Japanese, getting them to help you. Um, all of that is, you know, part of the propagandistic message that's there. It's still kind of in the background. It's not totally in your face like you would see in other propaganda pieces. I mean, when you watch this, what would you like if I say if I say the word like gleeful about your opponents and your intent, uh, does that pop up in this movie for you that, that they're? that they're extreme and intense about uh, we're going to talk about the enemy to your children or is it is it ultimately more in the background uh, the whole message of it all i think uh, up until the end um when the actual fighting starts it's you know it's 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 very much in the background um once they get to what they label as uh, ogre island because one of the things that kind of goes hand in hand i think with the whole child of peach mythology is is the aspect of the Japanese ogre or oni as it's referred to. And even so, even here and also in sea eagles, when they depict Westerners, um, you'll see them depicted with horns on their head. Those are, those are, that's kind of a signifier for the, the oni that they have these either a single or sometimes double or triple horns, um, coming out of their head. So all the, the Western forces, didn't that pop up in this one, or was it one of the other things you showed me? That we, we, I, I remember an image where the horns popped up really quickly and then went back into someone's head. I don't know if it was this movie or if one of in one of the Looney Tunes one depicting the Japanese. Hmm, it, it, that that might have been in that one. I don't recall, um, but definitely the when they're at the negotiation table in this one, um, all three of the. British slash American forces at the negotiating table have horns. You can't always see right. them depending on the camera angle um, that that they've got it positioned at, but they're there and they're there on the foreign forces as they're kind of running around in sea eagles as well. I mean, that's putting it front and center what they're doing. And because I'm the uneducated fella looking at this for the first time, I was watching for if they're going to go hardcore on us and, be either immature or very or make them scary or do violent things to their opponents and partially that's true and it it doesn't really affect my opinion of the movie as such it's it's quite fascinating to know how far they will go how gleeful they will be and it's as you said more in these latter sections but during the middle sections when they're they're organizing the base and they're, they're showcasing the that everybody cooperates and uh, we can learn we, we can teach 
and we can uh, we can build a base and we can build an operation and we can execute an operation despite being on front street in a way through the singing through the efficiency it is a little bit more shoved into the background the propaganda attempt or intent of it all i mean there are moments of course when they at the end of a song where they sing about how proud they are of their splendid achievement you reach the crescendo of the song and there's a zoom in on the rising sun flag so obviously you know you know what's going on there but they're not uh, being uh, silly about it so, which was very interesting to see versus that looney tune short that you showed me that you can operate propaganda operate within propaganda in different ways there's a similar there's a similar theme though that runs through all of the all of these propaganda pieces which although I don't know I guess uh, Tokyo Jokyo and Education for Death would have been in front of other films at the time that when they were being shown and I I wouldn't know if they were only intended for adults but my guess is that they were not necessarily only intended for adults I mean the education of uh, education was it after that after that for four for death or after uh education of death yeah that that was aside from the silly hitler segment it was serious <laughs> you yeah. know it uh it it wasn't a, a jolly production in terms of animation design or at all it was very serious mostly in german language and uh yeah it was surprising how um, serious they went with it you know aside from like hitler is stupid yeah well that's the interesting through line though right it's because well, the one thing that this film does, that Seagulls does, that uh, Tokyo Jokyo and Education for Death, they all do, is they make the the enemy ultimately silly yes. and and dumb. So in Tokyo Jokyo, the Japanese a lot of times are either drawn as very silly caricatures and they're drawn to show how incompetent they are. Um, here too, in Momotaro, the the generals sitting at the negotiation table they're all like bumbling and they can't talk correctly and they're all nervous um and even as you pointed out hitler in education for death is made very much as comic relief for throughout much of which is is a very sort of serious segment um so that's one of the ways i think that they kind of tone these down more for children is to make you know the enemy very silly in in some ways uh, going back to uh, my, uh, the rest of my notes might be a little scattered, but um, go, going back to the middle section in uh, in the airfield and as they prepare, I, I talked about how they stacked songs. Uh, um, me will, at that point where they start to sing about fruit and bananas and what they might be, what are they? What what is this? What is that? Uh, what is that? That is tobacco, and so obviously an animal. Uh, lights up as well we're living in that era where where you could find the smoking in animation and you wouldn't see that uh, nowadays so 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 it's a it's a song about the eating properly before battle i suppose and i understand why they put these simple digestible uh not to make a pun but uh digestible songs there but it does slow the movie down because it seems like the, the that section is all about preparation set to song but um, you know it's enjoyable to see how they how they navigate this section technically, how they animate uh, the concept of uh, preparing for this operation involving all the animals of uh, of the jungle. And uh, even though it's not, probably not the most uh, 
complex animation of the movie, but they have a lot of them on screen. You know, not just three or four, but, you know, clusters of uh, animals all singing along. So, I mean, that, that must have been challenging at the time uh, to provide these wonderfully drawn backgrounds and then a lot of moving animations, um, you know, on top of that or in the foreground. So, uh, but, but it isn't afraid to make it real, to make it stock. And uh, they even have uh, the animals receiving letters from home. You know, that type of melodrama. They're on the front lines and uh, they, they show them missing what's home, with a harmony at home. And I mean, that that's a dramatic beat from live-action war movies that, that you uh, that, that you recognize. And, and I guess, uh, as you talked of, uh, children probably wouldn't be that jarred to have a serious nature injected into the movie, including then in the final battle and all of that. It was quite fascinating that they they, they, they simply did change tack to a more serious tone than pl- the planning of the attack and ultimately the attack of Devil's Island or Ogre Island. So, um, and, and I'm also used to being, a, <laughs> by this point, a, a lifelong Asian cinema fan that uh, tone shifts. So it's not a thing for me, but... Uh, you you would almost expect Paul ma- making a movie for children that you wouldn't uh, put the sort of fear of death into them by having sad sections and violent sections. But again, as they conceptualized this, maybe that was not even an issue when they conceptualized this to make it stark and violent and uh, you know actiony, I suppose. Uh, so um, it's um, I'm saying all of this because it, it isn't a problem for me, but it's surprising that it switches and that it's uh, is, uh, devoted to the seriousness of it all, you know. The sections then as they approach the island, the kingdom of uh, Goa. I, I have some minor technical notes, but I'm going to throw over to you. Uh, is it the most ambitious sections of the film, with it being, um, they put this uh, section uh, within a big old, big old storm, so there's uh, tons of rain and wind and all of that. So is it the most ambitious sections of the movie, you think? Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's very technically challenging, and they do pay quite a bit of attention to the environment around them. You know, it, this is in contrast, because usually for Western animation, it's always about the character and the central character. And even though this is a quote-unquote Momotaro film, he's not actually in it all that much. Um, and it's interesting because, as you talked about, with this character traditionally in his narrative origin story he can be depicted as being very heroic very noble or sometimes lazy sometimes naughty in some ways he's very much uh, a a parallel to the naza character from chinese mythology in both his origin and and how he's portrayed at times but here he's almost portrayed very much as just a straightforward samurai general from an akira kurosawa film i mean he's dubbed by a uh, child though so they uh, they even it out like that to make it maybe more approachable for the kids watching by having the hero they're supposed to hero momotaro dubbed by a child you know he's very serious he's very you know he's got some glares going on um hardly i don't think he ever smiles um so you know it's got that kind of sort of contrast, especially it's very apparent when he sits down and he's at the negotiating table with the generals. He's a, he's a child, but he's very much the adult in the room, as it were. 
Like, we will attack you. Uh, there's no... We're not gonna negotiate anything. Like, ooh, well, I guess we'll... Oh, we don't know. Like, they, they, they're the floaties or jello-like animation for the, for the cowardly Westerners. Goes into overdrive, I think. Because <laughs> they look even sillier. Being indecisive. And uh, they don't have this... Uh, uh, yeah, they don't have a de- uh, decisive sort of hand at the uh, at the negotiating table. All, all done with a purpose, obviously. So, was it ever cringy in terms of like, oh god, this is the this is what I hate about propaganda? Like, uh, know exactly what they're doing, and it's cringy. Or do, do you think the movie manages to avoid that, and you simply say to yourself, I understand the purpose of this, but uh, it's well made for what it is? So, or, or what's your take on that? It, it keeps a pretty. Uh, level and even tone throughout even at the end there's a there's an end shot which is a sort of foreshadowing shot to the future and what you know because it focuses on santa which is the little uh, monkey brother who gets in trouble in the very early part of the film and it shows him playing with some other children and they are you know basically jumping around pretending to be paratroopers like their older brother like his older brother, and uh, they kind of jump down from a tree and they land on this sort of sketched out with a stick uh, map of the uh, what is the United States. Some very direct foreshadowing there of, yes, and in the future, this is, you know, what the future generations will, will go on to accomplish. But even there, I think it's very downplayed. Yeah, it, it is. But, and then it's it's hard to say that the depiction and the tools they use in the narrative to depict the propaganda aspect that it's hard to say i suppose that they're doing a bad job of it because they're they're communicating it very clearly to the children for the children to understand and it's not awkward as they do it they don't resort to the silliness to get uh, to get the message across i suppose Uh, and i mean technically there's some artistry to be had based on that uh, you know we, we we touched upon it but but therefore the the violence of the last section of the film that includes some stabbings and stuff uh, th- that maybe wouldn't have been uh, either out of place or too extreme for the movie maybe that was what uh, the imperial navy was looking for um, all along that it goes into overdrive like this to show that you know we can plan and we can execute literally uh, so, but it is probably the the one thing in a way that those brief stabbing sections that make you go, children's movie. Okay, where's the alphabet song? I miss the <laughs> alphabet song. Yeah, so. but even there, I think that because I was kind of you know thinking, all right, they're they're gonna the other shoe's gonna drop here in a minute, and this is gonna you know this is gonna go into like watership down territory or something mm, yeah um it, it never really goes that dark um i think you know because you're dealing with a film that's about war you know there are some expectations of violence and it never really because i think went into this thinking okay propaganda film it's gonna get really violent and they kind of kept the violence cartoony for the most part it happens quite quickly, but you 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 notice when they they you know someone gets stabbed by bayonet. I think yeah, it, it lasts for a second. And there's implied violence that is kind of kept off screen uh, for the most part, and it's very much in line with I think you know violence that would be shown to kids for the era. 
again, think back to the thing we talked about last time, which, you know, involved sticking fingers in people's chests and heads exploding, which was also intended for kids, you know, maybe not quite quite as young an audience, but still um, how how much times have changed. So I, I still think that in general, though, it's pretty level about what it's doing. I if you go into this knowing that how this was intended and who it was intended for and some of the other notes, uh, you know, that that Ken has brought out in in sort of reading up on this, I think you'll find a very enjoyable piece of animation overall if you're somebody who appreciates animation or animation history. I don't think you'll find this distasteful. No, I, I've seen, again, we're going back to that one of maybe hundreds of Looney Tunes cartoons from, from that time, you know, that Tokyo Joker. I was going like, okay, you made your joke. Oh no, you still have jokes. Okay, have another. <laughs> okay, you're gonna do this for seven minutes. I see what you're doing. Like uh, again, it's the the making of raspberry sounds, uh, literally. So it was the, the contrast between the productions, and and I'm I'm not saying Japan didn't do uh, immature propaganda. I'm sure they did, but it, it's interesting the contrast of uh, East and West uh, during a time of. Uh, crisis and war and tension and uh, and all of that and i mean going back to the director he, he knows a thing or two about the beats leading into the battle sequence you know we're, we're on the plane there's a song on the plane and that's expected from these movies to, to communicate through song and through very clear and heroic and uh, nationalistic lyrics uh, but not uh, biting lyrics as such you know there's even a lyric uh, you know bloom oh faithful parachutes which i'm not saying because it's funny it's what they sing about and uh, it, it's an exciting sequence, and the wind and the rainstorm adds good atmosphere as um, darkness envelops um, them before they uh, they uh, jump out of the plane, and um, the sequence on the ground starts. So, I mean, as an action sequence, it's um, it, it's not too bad. You know, something or two about how to craft one. Yeah, and there's there's a nice contrast too with um, nature, which is off, often a theme in a lot of. Japanese storytelling, because that idea of the parachutes blooming at this in the in the very beginning of the film, what you end up seeing is is these um, I, I what are they even called? They're they're these uh, these kind of flower seeds that when you blow them, you know, they just kind of go up in the air and they're round in shape, and and they look very much like a paratrooper in the distance with the white parachute and thing, and so they make these visual parallels to you know, nature and sort of the natural order of things, um, which which I felt was very nice from an animation perspective, but also interesting from a storytelling perspective that, you know, you're talking about, you know, people jumping out of planes, going to do battle, but at the same time, you're making sort of these allegories for the optics of that as something that if you push that aside, it's it's a very nice image. You know, ultimately, it is an easy movie to appreciate and it's not uh, it's not hardcore violent where it's disturbing to watch and uh, even as an outside viewer of this um, conflict uh, you you can you know connect to the fact that this was part of uh, the entertainment scene to a degree this is how the war was fought to a degree too and how it was communicated and uh, the east and the west did it in a variety of ways and uh, this was one of the ways but you know it, the trigger and why we were even talking about this was that a feature-length anime came out of it and uh, from 1945 and onwards uh, that's an industry that just uh, 
evolved itself and uh, creativity and then some has come out of uh, this notion of uh, anime so so i'll I'll conclude it uh, all right there uh, so uh, any other notes before we do the availability from you no other direct notes on the film um but i would say that if this is you know something that interests you um obviously there are more contemporary things that you can look at i'm not a big war story guy um per se but of course you've got the miyazaki film the wind rises which deals with subject matter from this time period you've got uh the film uh, eternal zero from a few years ago and there's a really good film if you can track it down i think availability might be an issue the english title i know it had a hong kong vcd release because that's that's the one i have i've never seen it in other any other form that has uh, uh english subtitles available but it's called Flyboys Fly, and it stars Takuya Kimura as a pilot on one of these sort of Southeast Asian uh, bases. Um, so a lot of the imagery is the same. And it's basically about the, sort of the last days of the war and this group of pilots who are kind of wanting, waiting for the war to end, but they are also potentially going to get a call to become kam- kamikaze pilots and it's more a character story than a war story per se, but it's, you know, it's a different perspective that you'll get from your big Hollywood epics like Pearl Harbor and Midway and, and stuff like that that's out there. So if you can track that down, uh, you can check that out as well. Was Grave of the Fireflies uh, set during World War Two? Uh, oh. I know it's a downer, but uh, obviously, obviously oh. Ghibli and it's a greatly re- <laughs> yes. uh, revered film. Yeah, that is uh, World War II, and um, how could I? How could that even elude my brain? Because why? Because every time I watch it, I say I'm never going to watch this again. I hate, I hate having feelings. <laughs> That's a punishing film if you've not seen it, but it is definitely well worth your time. And yeah, it's tough subject matter, but um, it's just a, a beautiful film. I mean, it's what I've always been fascinated by in terms of Ghibli and its chief filmmakers, Miyazaki and Takahata that their approach was, one was to simplify it a lot, one was more fanciful in terms of the fantasy, and one of them tried to be me more down-to-earth and human and direct human stories, and certainly visually was thinking differently, and Takahata was thinking uh, differently and uh, tried to do more contemporary human stories, maybe with some fantasy elements here and there, but ultimately uh, about people more than uh, fly machines, like Miyazaki liked. <laughs> Uh, but there are exceptions, of course, because uh, I think uh, Takahata, he he wasn't against uh, bringing in some fantasy elements um, here and there. But uh, I always like those contrasts in, in the filmmakers um, uh, and all of that. I mean, uh, you wouldn't have a movie like My Neighbors Were Yamadas from Miyazaki because he visually he wouldn't, I, I think, approach that basic style. But Takahata really went with that experimentation and uh grave of the fireflies say i mean don't spoil it for me of course but is it all a human straightforward drama or does it toy with more fanciful fantasy elements too no it's pretty much straightforward human drama um i mean there's some minor fantastical elements that you could apply to the storytelling it's it's mostly straightforward it's gonna be your sunday afternoon cartoon with you and your kid Right. <laughs> <laughs> many, many years later, after we've after we've exhausted every other title in the Ghibli Museum. At any rate, uh, as for availability of uh, Momotaro Sacred Sailors, uh, we mentioned that it has UK and US Blu-ray 
editions. Uh, both are readily available. Uh, both editions uh, feature that extra animated short, Spider and the Tulip. Uh, I don't know what the US edition has in terms of physical extras, if they have a, 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 a booklet of stuff or even a book. But the UK edition does have a 100-page long book by Jonathan Clements that features, among other things, the detailed writings on the life of director Mitsuyo Seo and the movie's uh, production uh, information as well, including uh, you know what happened in the aftermath of it. So I've uh, started reading it, started reading it, and it's a really good uh, read with good info if you like the, the movie or trivia part of it all. But uh, there's apparently a lot to be said by uh, of the director uh, Mitsuyo Seo, including. Uh, Later on, he was, uh, you know, they didn't just disapprove of his movie, but uh, they claimed he was a communist later in life. So he was um, not thought of very highly uh, as he moved through life. So it's a it's a story, apparently, and uh, I recommend uh, that DVD um, uh, Blu-ray edition. It's actually a DVD and Blu-ray edition. So if you don't have a Blu-ray player, you can you, you get the standard definition disc with it as well. But uh, that's from the label All the Anime, and the US edition is Funimation, I believe. So um, that's uh, that's it. So um, we are going to continue our anime exploration for next episode, but I'll, um, I'll, I'll leave that open for now. But uh, I'll, I'll just say we're going to do some firsts, and this represented one of the firsts that we're going to examine. So um, you can uh, take a guess what uh, what we're going to do next and then l- let us know on the Facebook group or Twitter or the likes. But um, in the meantime, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, including the back catalogue of Japan on Fire, go to podcastonfire.com and uh, all the relevant links connected to this episode will be in the show post, including the iTunes feed and how to find us on Apple Podcasts and stream us on Stitcher Radio and Spotify and all that good stuff. And uh, including uh, the links uh, also to my review website and to Paul's podcast archive but uh, he's the honorary co-producer and co-host so I'm gonna let him plug all by himself so yeah it's mentioned it's uh, east screen west screen and you can find us over at uh, concast.com excellent excellent well we are down for this uh, episode so thank you for um, for indulging us I, I like producing these specials with a specific uh, content um, you know if it pleases you First and foremost, uh, that you wanted to hear in some shape or form a special on uh, the first feature anime, then why not attempt to do it yourself? And that's what we did. Hope you enjoyed. And uh, I've been Kelly Beer with me was Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast. He was the smart one, I was the dumb one. Not even close. Sayonara.